I'm Brett, he's Greg, and Tristan Field-Jones is here. Tristan's in for Shanley Vidal today, but uh, Tristan is also a guy we turn to for issues of storm chasing, celestial events. You just heard Jeff Braun talking about the super blue blood moon. Is that what you were calling Super this? Blue Blood Moon. Yep. I believe that's it. Yes. Yeah, that's in quotations right I, here from writers. Very good, Brett. I, I don't follow kind of celestial events as closely as I might follow the weather, but uh, as you may recall, Brett, uh, when I was filling in for Greg on the afternoon show, Macklin and McGarry, I was live at the Manitoba Museum for the solar eclipse right. during the summer, which was an, an, an incredible event. So what are we seeing out in the sky right now? Well, unfortunately, if you look at the photo I took on my phone here, it basically looks like a frosted donut somebody took a bite out of. That's the best I could get. <laughs> well, it looks um, like a frosted cookie. Cookie Monster's been around. Uh, yeah. But what did you see with the naked eye? Oh, it looks spectacular out there. I mean, the 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 moon is as bright, if not brighter, than some of the street lights out there. And we just took it in the Polo Park parking lot here. And uh, it, looks, it, it looks incredible. It is like a... Uh, just just a, a, a white beacon, if you will, in the sky. Uh, and if you have just a minute uh, before you head to work or uh, just if you're out for a run or a walk, it is cold out there, so be careful. But uh, snap a pic if you've got a better camera than the one on my phone and just take a look because it really looks remarkable. I know you're from the social media age and you're of that generation, but you don't always have to have a picture. Sometimes just the picture you take with the the <laughs> mind's eye and the memory created is sufficient for some of us. I don't have much of a Tristan. choice here if you've seen the pictures on yeah, my phone. Well, so. Yeah, it, it looks like basically looks like the Apple uh, logo with the bite out of the apple, except it's the moon with the bite out of it. <laughs> Jeff Courier said the exact same thing <laughs> oh, when I showed Lord. it to him in the newsroom. <laughs> Jeff Courier and I are agreeing on things and it's not even seven o'clock yet to write it down. The super blue blood moon, by the way, this is something that has not happened since 1866. And what it is, is it's, uh, so, okay, the last time all three conditions occurred for a single lunar eclipse was in 1866, according to AccuWeather. So it means the, uh, the eclipse is the one thing, the lunar eclipse, and then it's happening during... Uh, the rare occasion of a second full moon in a single month, otherwise known as a blue moon. Mm-hmm. And it's during a point in the moon's orbit at which it has reached its closest position to Earth, thus making it appear larger and brighter in the sky than normal as a supermoon. So the eclipse should unfold over the next little while, and uh, this is an instance where I'm pleased that we have darkness yet for a couple of hours. Really good point. I mm-hmm. thought it was cloudy. <laughs> I'm in here and I'm reading about this eclipse. And I'm like, ah, we're not going to be able to see it. <laughs> 45 minutes later, Brett goes, yeah, go look out the window there. You can see the moon. I'm like, through the cloud? He goes, yeah, it's crystal clear out there. <laughs> so a meteorologist, weather expert, I am not. No. 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 And, and same here. I'm just a guy who's interested in weather, frankly. But yeah. uh, I, I think it is remarkable how often we fail to just look up at anything in nature, be it, uh, you know, a celestial event like this, if you will, or even incredible weather phenomenon. I mean, I've had some of the most incredible pictures and some of the most incredible things I've seen were steps outside the perimeter. Sure. And and it's it's amazing to me how isolated you can be when you choose to have that sort of Winnipeg-centric insular view. I mean, sometimes just even just take a trip a few minutes outside the perimeter, and who knows what you might find, because there's there's some pretty incredible stuff out well, there. Well, even the sky changes dramatically once you get outside the perimeter. Mm. You see more stars. Especially at night, yeah. And the moon is brighter. So if you're up and you're so inclined and you'd like to see it, it is 
a sight to be seen. I always think about what would have been happening three, four hundred years ago when this shadow starts coming across the moon. Like, would they be throwing goats and chickens into a volcano or massive prayer ceremonies going on in order to stop this carnage or whatever, this impending doom that, the, you know, that people without scientific knowledge might not understand what was happening. I always think about that. Well, we always hear about, I mean, you, it doesn't take much research to find some of the ancient civilizations in, cent- in present-day Central America. What they did, I mean, sacrifices to make sure the sun would rise. Sure, the Mayans and, and the Incas. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's amazing. And you, when you look at, and again, we'll use the solar eclipse from last summer, too. I could only imagine how... The panic? In, Oh, certainly. Yeah. Oh. oh my God, the sun's disappearing. Correct. We need to do everything we can, and suddenly, all oh, the sun reappears. Thirteen minutes later, we're it, fine. And well, then it's like, oh, all the sacrifices worked. Exactly. Well, yeah. unless on that subject, in in L.A., uh, they're expecting up to two thousand people to head to the uh, Griffith Obser- Observatory on Mount Hollywood, where extra telescopes are going to be set up. But the uh, director of the observatory, Ed Krupp is going to, and this is apparently he does this during other eclipses, he's going to dress up like a wizard and bang pots and pans outside the observatory. And this pay, this is apparently, it's not just because he's a looney tune, he's <laughs> paying whimsical homage to myths about eclipses dating back to ancient Babylon when people believed they had to frighten away a mysterious creature swallowing the moon. There we go. There we Fascinating. Go. Thank you, Tristan. Sure thing. Tristan Field Jones filling in for Chantelie Vidal. Thank you very much for your insight on this. Oh, if it's too late to get out and catch that lunar eclipse, what is it? The super blue blood moon? Yes, that's did right. I, I meant to run. Right? Down. You did. I meant to run down the hall and have a peek, and uh, completely forgot. Oh, Greg's got his park on. He's going out. Are you going outside to look at the super blue blood moon? I gotta be the on-the-spot reporter. I'm running outside. Okay. I'll call you in a few minutes. Okay. <laughs> He's wrapping his scarf around his neck. He's going out to check out the super blue blood moon. In case you're just waking up and you're wondering what is that? Well, the super blue blood moon. If you look directly to the west or for the directionally challenged, and that's okay. Because sometimes I was just talking to someone the other day who says, I don't know which way is west. Okay, it's towards St. James. Do you know which direction St. James is? Look that way. And you'll be able to see this thing happening. The super blue blood moon, and we we have been hearing a lot that the term super moon or blue moon. There's it seems like every other lunar cycle there's some kind of a special moon that we've been hearing about. Well, this one is rather special. So the super blue blood moon is a combination of three things. One, there is a total lunar eclipse. So the Earth is. Casting a darkened red-tinted shadow across the face of its natural satellite, hence the term blood moon. But then two other factors are combining to make this spectacle particularly unusual. So this is unfolding during the rare occasion of a second full moon in a single month, otherwise known as a blue moon, and during a point in the moon's orbit at which it has reached its closest position to Earth, thus making it appear larger and brighter in the sky than normal as a supermoon. So you've got all three things. The reddish appearance of the lunar surface, the moon's image, does not vanish entirely during the eclipse due to rays of sunlight passing through Earth's atmosphere as the moon falls into our planet's shadow. The last time all three of these conditions occurred for a single lunar eclipse visible from North America was in 1866. 
according to AccuWeather. So, you want to make sure to go outside, look towards the west, and there's something interesting happening in Los Angeles where the Griffith Observatory director, Ed Krupp, says for the some 2,000 people who are going to be watching, he'll be outside, as he does in other eclipses. He's going to dress up like a wizard and bang pots and pans outside the observatory while the crowd watches, which is paying homage to myths about eclipses dating back to ancient Babylon when people believed they had to frighten away a mysterious creature swallowing the moon. Greg Mackling, are you outside? I'm outside, Brett McGarry. And it looks like that mysterious creature has just about swallowed the entire moon. I don't know if it's his, his rear end or his little bit of his face sticking out, but there's just a sliver of the moon visible right now. This is really cool. I feel terrible out here because I know how much you wanted to see this, Brett. I'll just walk down the hall and go see it myself. <laughs> it's really spectacular and uh, the sky is so dark. It's so clear and there's something about it being as cold as it is. It is very ominous to look up. You can still see you know, a shadow of the moon and a little bit of that red hue you were talking about that uh, the reflection off the earth might give us. It's uh, it's quite spectacular. I can only imagine what it's like outside of the city when you have very, you know, a lot less uh, light pollution. It is really spectacular. Yeah, and indeed the light pollution would, uh, it does have a play a factor in that. I remember, for example, I was out in West Hawk Lake a number of years ago, just looking out across the lake at night, and you could actually see that kind of milky hue between the stars. Uh, you can't see that kind of stuff from within the city, so uh, for those who are outside of the perimeter highway, no doubt this is going to be much better than from where we are sitting at Polo Park. Like, when I look out the window across the parkade, there's lights sticking out on top of that parkade, so that's kind of dimming my view. So... Where are you right now? I can hear you walking. Yeah, I'm walking a little bit closer to St. James Street to get away from some of that light pollution. And you know how when the moon is super bright when it's full and you can see the craters on the moon and the different definition of the surface of the moon? You can actually see it. It's almost like a reverse image, almost like a negative. You know, when you used to have those camera things with the... The film that you used to use inside the camera and used to get something called a negative. Uh-huh. I'm talking down to people now, uh, just being sarcastic. But you can really see some of the different features of the moon in a in a different way, unlike that you would on a night when the either there was no moon or it was a full moon. It is really really cool. Well, my it, space geek, <laughs> my space geek is coming out now. Did you bring a lawn chair? Are you just going to have a seat and uh, maybe a cold one while you're out there cold? <laughs> well, I just need a warm one. It'll be cold instantly, Brett. <laughs> okay. G-Mac, thank you very much for the... Uh, Greg Mackling, our on-the-spot uh, lunar reporter, joining us I'm live. Not on, on... I'm not on the moon, but, you know, as close as I'm getting, I guess. <laughs> All right, talk about climate change. Last Sunday, Russell Wilson of the Seattle Seahawks was on the football field in Orlando, Florida, representing the NFC in the Pro Bowl. Normally, that means a sunny sky, warm temperatures, but they happen to play that game in monsoon-like conditions at times. Today in Orlando, 20 degrees Celsius, 24 tomorrow, not, not too shabby. Meanwhile, in Manitoba... Even in the CGOMI News Cruiser, which is a Jeep SUV, I can still feel the wind. Now I'm inside the vehicle right now. If I step out, it's windy enough, and it's 
not pleasant to my face. I'm going to step back inside. Reporting live, Christian O'Mell, Global News. This evening, the wind's expected to shift to the northwest, which won't be pleasant for your face either, and continue blowing into the night. <laughs> that is Jeff Braun with one of the all-time classic uh, uh, classic uh, improv lines of all time here on 680 CGB. Christian O'Mell with one of his uh, steady and uh, unique reports for sure. Now, what does this have to do with NFL quarterback Russell Wilson and his wife, Kiara? Sierra. Sierra. How, how, how do you say it? Let's just ask her. Sierra. <laughs> uh-huh. So it's actually Sierra. Uh-huh. You have to say it like that. 48 hours after playing in the Pro Bowl, the couple were in Gimli, Manitoba on Lake Winnipeg yesterday in a blizzard, and they seemed to enjoy almost every minute of it. Run! It's snowing. It's crazy out here. Too much fun. Get out. to hit this. About to drift right here in the snow. Where you at? Where you at? Well, love might be a strong word. The power, the power couple were on the lake driving luxury automobiles, Mercedes-Benz. They have this incredible event where you can do AMG winter sporting pro driving and an AMG performance Mercedes-Benz. And according to Brittany Greenslade and Global News, the couple were at Raw Almond last night enjoying frozen water in a different fashion. Yeah, and we saw footage of it on Global News Morning here in our studio at 680 CJOB. So we're going to have coffee now and talk about, well... Oh, we're going to have coffee? Have to, oh, that's right. Oh, no. Jeez. Are you with oh, coffee? We ran out of coffee this morning. Oh, it's that's a, right. one of the worst days in the history of broadcasting. <laughs> oh, be... Wasn't that the issue yesterday, too? Wasn't there a coffee shortage they were yesterday? They low yesterday. Ooh. They might have run out in the afternoon, but we don't care about oh, that. Oh, I thought you meant the worst day in broadcasting <laughs> history. That was sort of a different thing. Yeah, well, so we wanted to talk about some of the different people we might have happened upon. Russell Wilson in Manitoba. I read on Twitter, somebody said, Russell Wilson was on my flight from Minneapolis. This was on Monday, and it's like, what's he doing here? Somebody else quipped, uh, good signing for the Blue Bombers to get <laughs> Russell Wilson. So <laughs> the antennas were up. So now we know why Russell Wilson and his wife were here. We want to talk about some of the famous people you might have happened upon in your life. Brett McGarry? For me, and it took me a second to think about it because, I mean, I've, I've spoken to Chris Jericho a number of times, WWE superstar, and uh, and then I've, you know, met a couple of other wrestlers when I went down to WrestleMania, but that's not uh, just a, you know, a chance encounter. And then I remembered in, I think, 1995, I was playing pool at Right on Q at the Forks, which is no longer a thing. It then became Finn McHugh's, and I think that's no longer a thing as well, but it's on the second floor of the Johnston Terminal. And playing pool beside me is Bill Murray. <laughs> what? Wow. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah, because he was in town for the St. Saint Paul Saints. He was the part owner, right? Right. So he was, and he was making jokes because he realized, you know, everybody was kind of looking at him, and yeah, he was cracking jokes, and I was just trying not to... To break the ball, too, because whenever I break, I have this tendency to smash, and then the cue ball goes flying, so I didn't want to do that and, and end up getting mocked by him. Because <laughs> yeah, he'd be terrible at mocking you, right? <laughs> it, like, it'd be the best mocking of all time. Yeah. You should have done it. That would have been a so. highlight. That would have been an honor. 
Tristan Field Jones? Who have you happened upon you, you, in your you know, life? It's, it's one of these topics where you kind of th- think about it, and and I just think of uh, you know people you've encountered, and I I didn't really have any stories, but then Brett mentioned uh, uh, about about Chris Jericho, and when I was in college, we were uh, filming for I uh, I did all sorts of kind of video classes and TV classes, and we were filming this s- s- small assignment, and a friend of mine uh, happens to bring in just for the assignment Joe Dirksen. Of all people, mixed martial artist, and I thought uh, I had heard the name before, and I was, you know, kind of a, a little bit flabbergasted. Like, yeah, we're just doing this dumb little school assignment. Here's my buddy Joe Dirks, and I was like, wow, that's kind of cool. Um, another thing as well, I will say, and uh, this was courtesy of you two. Did actually. I ask two? I asked for one, Tristan. <laughs> okay, sorry. We're on a time constraint come on, come here. On. Okay, go quick. Uh, John Reese Davies. I know that you guys had him booked. I had no idea he was showing up in studio here. Uh, so that was cool, just showing up here, and oh. Gimli from Lord of the Rings. Yeah, awesome. Well, that happens from time to time around here, yeah. right? There'll yeah. be guests that are coming and going on other stations. Like I didn't know they were coming here today. Yeah, yeah, that that that, that kind of thing happens a lot. But uh, I got thinking, you know, something where you really weren't expecting anything like that to happen. I was walking uh, downtown Toronto when I was in high school, and I ran into Mario Van Peebles. Really? <laughs> Sunny <laughs> Spoon? Sunny Spoon, yes. The star of Jaws 4, The Revenge? <laughs> what was that Civil War piece that he did? What was that? Um, he did, yeah, he did, it, it was like a, on HBO or TBS or something. And I saw him in Vancouver at the Roxy one night. And I said to him, I don't care what anybody says, you're a great actor. <laughs> <laughs> and he must have loved you for that. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I actually just ran into him. Uh, he was coming one way, I was going the other, and he, we we hit each other, and he just looked at me and said, "Oh, sorry, man." I looked up and I said, "Hey, I know Mario who you Van are. Peebles." He's, it's yeah, yeah, weird yeah. when you recognize a face and you think it's somebody from your personal yeah. history, and it's actually not. That happens to me a lot, and it always, and I mean, always turns out to be somebody local who was on uh, a reality show. It's like, oh, from the Canadian Amazing Race or whatever, right? One of those people, something like that. But no, I, you guys are lucky. I never have anything close to that. The biggest thing I could think of was the, the one time I saw Fred Penner at the grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like everyone has seen Fred Penner at least once at the grocery store. Yeah, I don't know. Well, that's kind of like the first time you see your teacher at the grocery store, right? It's sort of out of place, but in place. I was telling Brett about how Lyle Lovett used to wander up and down Portage Avenue back in the in the mid-1980s because his girlfriend lived in Winnipeg, but it wasn't until our old friend Larry Updike told the story on air here that I realized that I had been crossing paths with Lyle Lovett for probably two or three years on Portage Avenue in the West End. But the one that strikes out, you know, stands out for me, I'm serving at Earl's on uh, St. James Street, and this uh, young man walks in, and, and right away I recognize him, and it's like, you know... I love the idea that uh, I know this guy from high school, go back and forth, and he goes, dude, you don't know me from school. And I'm like, sure I do. He goes, I'm from Toronto. It was Jonathan Torrance, J to the ROC. We forgot, and you know know who else is here? Do we have time, Jerry? Okay, we're going to make time for Kathy Kennedy. Hi, KK. Good morning. And first of all, Tristan, it's Joe Alderte Dirksen, okay? Oh, pardon me. right. Okay. Then I would have known who you were talking about if you would have thrown the, the nickname in, TFJ. KK, how about yours? All right, uh, real quick, because this happened uh, about a month ago, and it actually happened to my girlfriend, and I have to retell it because, Greg, this is for you. In Vegas, uh, last week of December, uh, off to see Duran Duran, my girlfriend is uh, walking into the show, and who does she bump into? No. 
No. Dave Grohl. Oh, Dave Grohl. Wow. And she's and and Leandra said, you know, it was one of those moments where she looked at him, he looked at her, she said, I know you with the eyes, and he went, I don't know you, but <laughs> it ended up they sat uh, pretty much close together at a at a show, a Duran Duran at the Cosmopolitan because uh, Foo Fighters were playing the next night. Okay. Oh, Thanks no. a lot, KK. <laughs> <laughs> Kathy Kennedy on from one to four this afternoon in for Hal Anderson. And actually, when I met Kathy Kennedy, when I walked out into the newsroom and they were sitting Kathy Kennedy, I'm like, what? Similar, KK? similar sort of thing. Quick heads up for you, Mac. I have... Uh, Got to take my car in today. Took my car in last week for an oil change. Turns out I have an oil leak. So I have to take it back to Murray Chev or my friends at Murray Chev to get the oil pan fixed. Uh, So hopefully they can get that uh, done by later today so I can drive to work tomorrow and not have to put on my snowshoes or whatever at 3 in the morning. Uh, But the heads up to you is I got to leave right at 10 (laughs) o'clock. Well, I will will pick you up. If need be, I will pick you up tomorrow morning. We've got lots of text messages on people that you've literally bumped into. In one case, like ran over famously at 204-780-6868. We will get to those as soon as we can. We've got a jam-packed 7 o'clock hour for you here and we'll uh, kick things off telling you about St. Raphael's Wellness Center. They're hosting an art show fundraiser in honor of a family member of one of the coordinators who overdosed on fentanyl. And indeed, the headline uh, from the St. Raphael Wellness Center, Addiction Survivor Raises Life Support for Unique Winnipeg Recovery Center. And we are joined on the phone, and I'll get I'll ask Behind the Glass Jerry to bring our guests on because I always mess it up when we have two guests. Gordon Pratt, who is counselor and coordinator of the art show, and Kathleen Shellrude. Am I, am I saying your name correctly? Is it Shellrude? You are, yeah. Excellent. Kathleen Shellroot is also art show coordinator. And Kathleen, I also understand that you lost a nephew to substance use, uh, specifically to fentanyl. Uh, so thank I you did, for taking yeah. the time this morning to join us uh, to tell us uh, your story. I guess just give us a little bit of details about what happened with you and your family. Um, so my, my nephew, who was only 20 at the time um, in September of this year, um, was found on a sidewalk in uh, Vancouver uh, with his heart stopped. And um, they found that he had overdosed uh, on fentanyl. And uh, so he was on life support for three days uh, while they were trying to figure out whether they could donate any of his um, organs. Um, and uh, then they found he was never going to recover. So. Um, he passed on to his next journey. How did this affect you? Obviously, it's a tragedy, and condolences to you and uh, your nephew and their his entire family. How did this affect you? Uh, well, I mean, it was horrible. It was it was a shock, and the grieving process is you know lengthy and and terrible. Uh, I myself am in recovery, so I kind of had a choice, right? I I could go and use myself to try to cope with his loss, um, or I could do the opposite. So uh, what I did is I started making art about it. 
Now, Gordon Pratt also on the line on 680 CJOB. He is counselor and art show coordinator for this event uh, with the St. Raphael Wellness Center. So, Gordon, tell us about this uh, show that uh, you folks are putting on. Well, uh, Kathleen came to us um, and and told us the story of Gordo and uh, said that she wanted to have uh, a way of memorializing him uh, as well as giving back to to the living, to people who are still working on their recovery. Um, So we were very grateful to hear that, uh, um, that she wanted to prepare a fundraiser for us like that. And when is this fundraiser happening? Um, it's happening on February 23rd, 24th, and 25th, uh, with opening night performances at 7 o'clock on the Friday. And it's at the Edge Gallery at 611 Main Street. So, Gordon, give us an idea about St. Raphael's uh, Wellness Centre. What does it do and how does it do it? Uh, St. Raphael Wellness Centre works with uh, adults living with substance use disorder. We specialize in working with people before they go into a treatment program and after they come out. Uh, We do everything in group and individual counseling, uh, and we're not-for-profit, so everything's on a, all the fees are on a sliding scale. So this is, uh, this show is to honor uh, someone lost to overdose or substance use disorder, uh, related suicide, illness, or violence, Um, and if you, can people, if people are dealing with this or if this is something that affects them or someone in their family, uh, can they reach out to you for help? Um, yes. Um, two things. Uh, at the art show, because it's a memorial, we'll be reading names of people who have passed away, um, as you say, related to anything to do with substance use or who are part of the recovery community. Um, so people can contact me if they want names added to that list. Um, and because we offer the counseling services if someone's having a hard time dealing with substances in their life um, or the lives of people in their family, they're certainly welcome to reach out to us as well. Kathleen, I'd like to ask your permission to reach out to you again because I'd like to learn more about your story, your struggles, and a little bit more about your nephew, Gordon. I apologize we don't have more time this morning, but we wanted to let people know about this art show, and uh, we'd love to hear more about your story. Would you Would you come back on with us? Of course I would. Yeah, of course I would. Anything I can do to, um, you know, first of all, memorialize my nephew, but also to help other people that are struggling with substance use, um, anything I can do to um, help that that cause would be great. Well, best of luck in your battles with this, Kathleen, and, and we will speak again. Thank you. Kathleen Shellrood, Art Show Coordinator, and Gordon Pratt, Counselor and Art Show Coordinator, once again with the St. Raphael Wellness Center for this show. Life Support Art Show and Sale, February 23rd to the 25th at the Edge Gallery and Urban Arts Center at 611 Main Street. Greg Mackling, Brett McGarry with you on this Wednesday morning. Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister. Justin Trudeau is in Winnipeg today to take part in a town hall. And our guest is Member of Parliament, Terry Duguid, MP for Winnipeg South, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Terry, thank you so much for taking the time this morning. Oh, good morning, Brett. Uh, Good morning, Greg. So what can we expect from this evening's town hall? Well, I think we can expect a big crowd. I think we can expect uh, an excited uh, crowd because the the Prime Minister is coming uh, to town. He's been across uh, uh, the country, of course, uh, doing this uh, this kind of thing, but... uh, just to give your listeners uh, the details, uh, it's uh, the town hall is uh, tonight. 
7 p.m. at the Max Bell Center, uh, University of Manitoba, Fort Gary campus. So we're really looking uh, forward to to seeing him, and uh, he's going to answer every uh, every question that is posed to him. Now, uh, were, did you have to pre-register to get into this event, uh, Mr. Duguid, or or will there be opportunity to get in at the door? How does that work? Yeah, so uh, absolutely. Uh, we, we've asked people to RSVP, and that's just to give us uh, a sense uh, of numbers, and I think we've had something like 2,100 uh, folks RSVP. Uh, you know, not everyone shows, and if you RSVP, it doesn't mean that uh, you're necessarily going to get in. Uh, the crowds have been overflow in some uh, locations, but for the most part, people have, uh, have been able to uh, see the Prime Minister uh, wherever he has been in the country. But uh, we encourage people to get there early. The doors open at, uh, at 5. Uh, if folks are there at 5, uh, in all likelihood, uh, they will get in. Um, it is cold out, so dress, uh, dress warmly. Uh, but uh, it'll be uh, nice and warm in, inside. And I know the Prime Minister is looking forward to talking to Winnipeggers and Manitobans. Traffic heads up. Uh, lights out at Highway 15 and Highway 207. Again, traffic lights out at Highway 15 and Highway 207. Highway 15, not the friendliest of drives with the lights on. Terry Tugut, our guest. Uh, Terry Duguid, pardon me, MP for Winnipeg South. Justin Trudeau in Winnipeg tonight to take part in a town hall, and he has done a number of town halls across the country in recent weeks. What uh, Have there been any particular issues that have been kind of consistent throughout? Uh, it's been everything and anything, uh, healthcare, the environment, uh, trade, uh, and of course, uh, one of the themes that, uh, of course, we're, you're talking about uh, this morning, uh, mental health, uh, part of our health package uh, with the health of the National Health Accord was for the first time allocating funds for mental health, which has really been an un- un- unserved, uh, underserved need in our country, so I'm sure that'll come up uh, today because, uh, as you know, it's a very, very important topic. Uh, and these uh, conversations haven't been without controversy, I think it's fair to say, Mr. Duguid. When you when you look at uh, the footage from across the country, there have been some questions asked, difficult questions, and questions that, if you had your choice, uh, maybe the Prime Minister wouldn't be forced to answer. But uh, the Prime Minister overall, I think, is fairly respectful of those that have those difficult questions, and and I, I'd like your take on that. Um, I've watched uh, some of the footage, and I think you're absolutely right. Uh, tough questions, but uh, you know the prime minister uh, feels that he is accountable to Canadians. This is this is the way that he stays in touch uh, with us. Uh, you know, you can uh, quickly get uh, out of touch in the Ottawa bubble, and that's why I'm back every weekend uh, in Winnipeg, and uh, you know. Uh, it's it's a way of uh, you know gauging what's on Canadians' minds, uh, what what is important to, to them, and of course uh, that differs from uh, from region to region. And we will have our own uh, uh, concerns here in in the city of Winnipeg. Liberal MP Terry Duguid, Winnipeg South. Thank you so much for joining us today on 680 CJOB. My pleasure. The doors once again open at the Max Bell Centre at the University of Manitoba at 5 p.m. First come, first serve, provided you have RSVP'd through Mr. Duguid's website. La Poutine Week starts tomorrow. There are 80, get this, there are 240 restaurants taking, er, taking part in this across Canada. Well, you know what? 
Let's find out more from the co-founder of La Poutine Week. His name is Naeem Adam, and he joins us now from Montreal on 680 CJOB. Mr. Adam, thank you very much for giving us the time this morning. And am I reading this correctly, that there are nine cities taking part, including the flagship city, Montreal, 240 restaurants, and over 80 of them are in Winnipeg? Uh, that sounds crazy, doesn't it? Well, not, I don't know, but how many are in, let, let me ask you this, how many are taking part in Montreal? We have 50 in Montreal, ah, but ah. historically we've had, we've had 100 um, in, in the past. And the reason why we've come down to, to half that amount is simply because uh, we wanted to kind of, we wanted to keep that quality up and not just get everyone on board. So, we were really trying to manage the, the experience a user was having around the Putin. And I'm, I'm going to be curious. I'd love to come down to Winnipeg and really, like, check out all 80 of these and see which ones really qualify as a, as a Quebec uh, Putin. Oh, sure. Naeem, uh, Naeem, I was, I was about to apologize for cackling at you, but I, I sense a rivalry <laughs> building between Montreal and Winnipeg and this whole sense of what qualifies as Putin and not. Like, you know, we've got lots of French-Canadian roots here in Manitoba. We really embrace that, especially this time yeah. of year. We have Festival de Voyageurs is on the horizon. I mean, uh, uh, I think you better get your uh, backside out here and, and find out for yourself how good we are at this I, I i was really shocked so we work with um charcoal collaborative in in winnipeg and when and when we found out that there were 80 restaurants i i thought somebody was lying to me i'm like this can't be how do they have more restaurants than we do but you know as a province of quebec we have uh, over we have about 150 so it's just on the island of montreal itself we have about 50 but outside we got about a, we, we have a lot more so that leaves uh, outside of the, for the other major cities, uh, Quebec City, uh, on t- Toronto, Ottawa, Vancouver, Edmonton, Calgary, and Regina, that leaves 110, and Winnipeg alone has 80. Now, you mentioned what qualifies as a true Quebec poutine, and indeed, looking at the Winnipeg creations, there are some pretty wild stuff. But in order to be a proper poutine, what has to be in the poutine? Well, I mean, I, I looked over that list uh in Winnipeg a few times just to see if anyone got something wild going on that didn't qualify. And you know what? It looks like a lot of them or most of them uh, ha- have it right, which which kind of boils my blood a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. I wasn't expecting controversy this morning. <laughs> no, but I, 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 was, I even told my team, I'm like, guys, what? Why does Winnipeg have 80? Like this is really cool. This is this is quite spectacular. So it really comes down to the three essential ingredients: the fries, the cheese curds, and the gravy. And uh, mixing those into some kind of hot mess, and that's what uh, Putin, you know, really means. Uh, is, that's a real qualifier uh, to to be a, a real Putin. And but some of these things uh, are just like I'm looking at them, and they look. Crazy, and our first year in Montreal was a little bit wild too. Um, I'm, I'm trying to like, I'm trying to bring Montreal back up a little bit here, but I'm having a hard time. <laughs> now you uh, you mentioned fries, but there are a couple of, of of these creations in Winnipeg that are using either hash browns or potato pancakes to put kind of a breakfast spin on it. Does that still qualify as long as it's some form of a fried potato? Yeah, I think you know what I think. The right answer is that that starchy potato kind of base that's that's necessary. But, you you know, 
there's different types of people that will give you different answers. Um, you know, some people will say fries and a brown sauce and, and a Quebec cheese curd with a certain level of squeak to it. Uh, and others will just say, hey, I need, just need some kind of cheese ingredient, some kind of starch and some kind of sauce. So uh, it really depends on, on who you ask. Now, the you guys are... You created Le Burger Week, which has been a wild success, uh, especially here in Winnipeg. So this is the first time that you have brought La Poutine Week here to Winnipeg. Is this the first time you've also expanded outside of Quebec in general, or uh, have you been to other no. major cities before? We've, we've, uh, I guess we've dabbled in different cities. We've opened um, the the festival of La Poutine Week to other cities. We, we you, you always end up getting about ten or fifteen restaurants involved because of, um, you know, just just the way, I, uh, you know, just access to the cheese or understanding of what a poutine is, uh, which has been great. But this year in Winnipeg, I, I feel like it's gone viral. I mean, can I can I say that it went viral? I, I, sure. I, I, don't you guys have about eighty restaurants? Yeah, I try about I two like... two thousand, brother. We got lots of restaurants in Winnipeg. <laughs> we love to eat food. And Russell Wilson, Russell Wilson was in Winnipeg yesterday, dining on the river. We have a pop up restaurant on one of our rivers, and Russell R- Wilson and Sierra were here last night uh, chowing down. So we can keep oh, up with just I've about heard. any city anywhere in the culinary war. So, Naeem, uh, we're inviting you to come to Winnipeg for La Poutine Week uh, next year, okay? Is it a deal? Um, you know what? I have actual plans to come down for Burger Week in September, but I do have, I did have on my agenda for, for two years now, I tried, I wanted to come down for the dinner on the lake. It's uh, done by uh, Deer and Almond, right? Correct. Raw, raw Almond. You're tapped in, yep. man. Yeah, I like it. Raw Almond, yeah. Sorry. So yeah, that that looks super cool uh, and and cold as well. I'm I'm I, I definitely I've been telling people for a while that Winnipeg Winnipeg looks uh, really awesome and the way that you guys get together as a community to build things, it's it's really like collaborative instead of you know us versus them and stuff like that where you see in some of the bigger cities. I think it's it's awesome and I'm really happy that we're in Winnipeg. Well, listen, when you come visit for the Burger Week, make sure you come see us here at the station and uh maybe we'll head out and uh, have a burger with you, all right? Oh yeah, I'd love that. Sounds good. Right on. Naeem Adam, thank you so much. He is co-founder of La Poutine Week of La Burger Week. LaPoutineWeek.com is the website. It starts tomorrow. It runs through February 7th. There are 80 restaurants in Winnipeg that you can visit and try something new, uh, including your buddies at the Heights. Yes. Our buddies at the Heights. Ray's Bistro, I was mentioning this. Slow roast duck confit. Barbecue pork belly, cheese curds, house smoke, provolone, black mission figs, ruby red port, and duck gravy, crispy leeks. Oh, my gosh. And they top it off with a soft poached egg with Tabasco sauce. Reaction to Donald Trump's State of the Union speech. Maybe a little bit mixed. Reggie Cicchini from Global News joins us now. He's our global national correspondent, joined us yesterday to set things up. And Reggie, uh, how did things go last night overall? What has been the reaction to the president's State of the Union? Well, you know, it went exactly the way that we thought it was going to. Like we said yesterday, put Donald Trump on a, on a stump, give him a teleprompter to read off of. If he sticks to script, it's usually a little more subdued. He had a message. It was written by his people in the White House. He spoke to a base. It's what he wanted to do. At the end of the day, he came across presidential, 
saying the things that he needed to say and getting a message across. No, I want to read a text message here, uh, Reggie, and it says, uh, depressing morning radio? Yep. This is in relation to how we discussed it earlier. Sorry, guys, but after hearing a decent Trump speech last night with optimism and hope, it's unfortunately that we are barely awake when we get banged over the radio brain with criticism on every point of the speech by the usual round of USA political suspects. And... Does this listener have a point? Are people being too critical of what Donald Trump had to say? I think it depends, again, on who you're talking to. Look, Democrats are going to sit there and say the president is is a person who speaks words and you can't really take his words without putting a grain of salt next to them because you never know what the next set of words is going to be. Democrats are sitting there to kind of rebut what the president has to say. At the end of the day, the president, he, he didn't actually say anything that was incredibly divisive. Uh, you might find different comments from the leader of the uh, House and the Democratic side who said that he was basically, you know, stoking a fire here. But Donald Trump's words were on point. He gave messages. Uh, when it came to immigration, they may have been a little dark and gloomy, but his immigration discussion that he had actually had some policy behind it, which could get some bipartisan support. So, I mean, yes, Democrats are going to say that this was kind of a doom and gloom speech. Republicans are saying this was the greatest thing that ever happened. For the most part, Donald Trump walked out of here. His numbers will probably stay the same, maybe even rise a little bit after what he said. He asked for bipartisanship, calling for the Democrats and Republicans to come together on uh, certain things. He has the habit of using hyperbole uh, with, you know, the words best, largest, greatest and sometimes I think that skews the message somewhat and and makes uh, what might be an otherwise accurate statement inaccurate by you know turning a, a bronze medal into a gold medal uh, to be uh, you know figuratively speaking and the other thing I wanted to ask you about Reggie does all the standing and clapping water down the message does it distract the American people and others that are watching from watching the entire thing well, I mean, look, every president who stands up there gets a standing ovation when they say something that speaks towards their base or towards their party. Normally, you get seven or eight standing ovations. Donald Trump had 12 of them last night, and then he kind of played the room after each sentence to see if he could get a few more claps. you got to remember, a State of the Union is what it is. It's a one-day event, and then a couple of days later to a week later, nobody's really talking about it anymore. You can't take too much stock about what the president says during this speech because it's his one opportunity to just lay out and say, look, this is what I want to do, and here's what we're going to do. And it's an opportunity for the party that's in power to pat themselves on the back to say, look, our man is up there and he's saying what we want. Interesting that you counted the number of times there was a standing ovation, Reggie, because I happened to tune in. I, I'm not entirely sure how much time it had passed. I think I flipped on the TV a quarter after uh, it would have been eight o'clock our time. And that's what was happening. He would say one thing, like one sentence, and there would be applause uh, many and many times Behind him, Mike Pence and Paul Ryan would stand up and then there would be a standing ovation. But there was, a, a, aside from the standing ovations, there was just large ovations after every sentence. It got to the point where I thought, he said what should have taken him 30 seconds, but it's been at least four minutes. I can't watch this. <laughs> Uh, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's kind of was, you know, you could see that from the Democratic side as well. I mean, oftentimes you'll have the opposition not stand up and not applaud each and every time that something happens. But the Democrats sat down for almost the entire speech, not giving him any applause. So this was literally a president standing up there saying, look, here are the things that I'm saying. I'm so great. I, here are the things that I've done. Keep clapping for me because this shows my base. This shows the people who put me here that I am doing something right.
You know, he called the tax cuts the largest, and and uh, lots of media outlets uh, have fact checked that and d- dispelled that to a certain extent. But you can't argue with the fact that Americans feel as though they're back at work again, and you know you can. Uh, you can cut through all the hyperbole and all the, the claims made by the president, but overall there are a lot of people that feel differently in America than they did 365 days ago or thereabouts. And that's because they've been told over and over, look, you're going back to work, more jobs, more money. But when reality comes into play here, there are more people who are out of work right now than there were over the last couple of years. But this was a, you know, seven years ago, we had an economy down here that had completely tanked. So it's been slowly rising. So, yes, maybe more people are going to work. Maybe more people are staying home. But the situation is just slowly growing better. So Donald Trump is just riding on the success of what was handed him over the last couple of years. It's not like he walked into an economy that was awful and is sitting here saying, I inherited a mess. and that's that's why we are where we are. But he also, uh, you know, the the Dow Jones, for example, uh, was around eighteen thousand in early November twenty sixteen, and it's uh, over twenty six thousand this month. Is that not something that he can gloat about? He can, but the stock market isn't a sign of how the economy is going. A stock market has to do with wealth and numbers when it comes to big companies around uh, America. And yes, the big companies are dealing with things, uh, you know, they're enjoying the fact that they got this big corporate tax rate uh, cut and that they're, you know, seeing all this investment. And he's trying to say that some of this money is filtering down into, you know, the working class. And yes, it is. While some of them are taking bonuses of $1,000, they're not actually seeing raises. And these companies are still walking away with profits into the tens of billions of dollars. So when you skew the numbers to make it sound like everything's great sure the economy's going well but when you look at the big picture you got to have to step back and say look let's see how this thing rolls down the road and see if the economy actually plays into everybody's favor reggie cicchini thank you for this we appreciate very much your the access and your point of view on this thank you you know it's uh, interesting when, when you talk about the the dow jones and all this wealth quote unquote that's being created within the, the united states economy uh that is one that's really up for debate as to whether or not there's, you know, any benefit overall to the masses. Of course, if you have a, what they call a 401k in the United States, that's growing because it's invested in the stock market. But these $1,000 bonuses, if you work a 2,000-hour uh, year, it, it, it works out to $0.50 cents an hour. It sounds like a nice lump sum, but it's not a ton of money. One, two, three. Three things with Tristan Field Jones in for Shanley Vidal. Today it's three things about the State of the Union Address. Good morning, TFJ. Hello, gentlemen. Uh, before we get started, what is the first thing? You're going all professorial on us. I'm not sorry. I'm not trying to do that, but <laughs> I'm trying to get you get you involved in the segment. Oh, here. okay, okay. So when I mention State of the Union, what are some of the first things that come to mind? Uh, just. Uh, standing ovations. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, I would say propaganda. I would say self-serving. Very interesting. Brett, what would you say? Um, yeah, I watched the five minutes that I watched. Were, we're talking specifically about last night's State of the Union? There's State of the Union in general, but yeah, if you want oh, to talk well, you about... Do, you want to know what the first thing that comes to mind with State of the Union? is? That, oh, all my favorite shows aren't on tonight because the State of the Union is on 17 channels. And it is true. There are a lot of major networks that do carry it. And both of you echo a lot of sentiments. People see it as pomp and circumstance, see it as, you know, oh, it's the president bragging or whatever it may be, right? There's just this, you know... Uh, cynicism about uh, almost all of them. It doesn't matter who the president is. Right. 
Well, yeah, I wasn't. This wasn't exclusive about last night. No, this no, was of course in not. General. Yeah, exactly. That's okay, exactly good, what I meant. Good, good. Well, the State of the Union is actually part of the U.S. Constitution. The president is required to give a State of the Union to Congress. That is his duty. Okay. Uh, so it's it isn't just for show. In fact, Article Two, Section Three in the Constitution, quote, says he shall from time to time give to the Congress information of the State of the Union and recommend to their consideration such measures as he shall ju- judge necessary and expedient. Now, there's no specific date on when to deliver the State of the Union, although usually it occurs late January, early February. And the president isn't actually required to give a speech, just an update, if you will, or information. Well, but what about a tweet? Would a tweet count? I guess they weren't no, counting on that, that in the that Constitution. Would, no, not when the Constitution was written almost 300 years and ago. And they weren't counting on the eventuality of a female president eventually exactly. either. Yeah, very much so. Verbiage there. Um, and <laughs> something else, too. So even though Donald Trump has been in office for more than a year and he has already addressed a joint session of Congress, this is technically his first State of the Union because in American politics, uh, when you're a newly elected president, you will oftentimes address everybody, but that is not a State of the Union, and they purposely refer to it as simply a speech because State of the Union is more about the president and what has been accomplished and what is coming up as to make sure that there isn't, I guess, too much overlap between outgoing and incoming president. So this is three things. Is that your first thing, your first and second thing? Where are we on the list here? Oh, well, this is the first thing here. Okay. okay. Um, That's and the constitutionality. The constitutionality of... Uh, State of the Union. And again, it is one of the few occasions where basically you have both houses of Congress that are in there, the president's cabinet, including the executive. There are representatives uh, from the dean of the diplomatic corps, which are other people there, joint chiefs of staff, which represent the military. So there is a lot of pop, pomp and circumstance, but it is one of the few t- occasions when people all come together. Let's dive into the history just a little bit here. The very first State of the Union was not referred to as a State of the Union, was not delivered in Washington, D.C., and was not delivered at night, and in fact wasn't even typed. George Washington in 1790 handed out and read handwritten notes in New York City at the time, which was the provisional capital, and basically said, well, here's the State of the Union, guys, so far in what was then a very young country. It sounds like one of our post-show meetings. Here's how, how, here's how it went today, <laughs> yes. and here's where we're at, and here's what's coming up next. It was not, yeah. Yeah, it was not unlike that. And you think, I mean, even back then they had the printing press, and yet he still had to write his notes out. And in fact, Thomas Jefferson actually discontinued the practice of the president delivering it in 1801 because it reminded him too much of the monarchy. And that was the case for over a hundred years. In I fact, I could see that actually. The very first president to re uh, uh, to to bring the the State of the Union speech back was Woodrow Wilson in 1913. So just over a hundred years ago, and even at that point, it still wasn't referred to as the State of the Union. Uh, they referred to it. Uh, where did they say this year? They referred to it as a pre- the president's annual address, mm. essentially. Um, So when did they start marketing this thing as State of the Union? State of the Union was officially coined by Franklin D. Roosevelt in 1934 and became widely accepted in 1947. So it's pretty new. It is relatively new, this State of the Union, as we know today. Uh, Warren Harding's 1922 speech was the first one broadcast on radio. Uh, Harry Truman's 1947 address was the first one to be broadcast on television. And Lyndon B. Johnson's address in 1965 was the first time they delivered it in the evening. So the idea of it being televised in the evening has been around for just over 50 years, the way we know about it, in a country that's over, well over 200 years old. Yeah, they've only had TV for about 70 years, though. 
So, yeah, fair so enough. All fairness. Yeah, and that's been a huge influencing factor on State of the Union. And the very first address that was available live online was Bill Clinton in 1997. Oh, that's kind of neat. And finally, speaking of live online and, and televised, TV ratings for this are huge. In really? fact, TV network. Yeah, you'd be surprised, actually, considering that it's one guy talking for over an hour. Yes. The, in the last 25 years, the lowest rated State of the Union, and this is American television, specifically not international countries. Sure. The lowest rated was Bill Clinton on January 27, 2000, when 31 and a half million people tuned in. Well, the lowest 10, 10% of the population. Yeah, and for for any television event, that's sure. pretty remarkable. The yep. highest rated one that I could find in the last decade was Barack Obama in 2009 at over 52 million okay, people. Okay, now that's a that's a number, right? Yeah. But it's also worth pointing out that that's across all the broad, the major broadcast networks as well as CNN and MSNBC and any other cable news network, uh, whereas more than that probably tuned in to watch the Seinfeld finale, uh, which is on one network. Oh, and, and that is, and again, that is a very, that is a fair point, but you have to look at it from considering that this is one guy giving a speech, basically, and we all, you know, everyone goes, oh, yawn, leave me out of this. But the fact is, tens of millions of Americans tune into this, and especially in this era of social media and online and that sort of thing, uh, it's pretty remarkable when you consider how many people still tune in for this. And in the last 25 years, the highest rated one I could find was Bill Clinton in 1993, almost 67 million viewers there. Tristan Field-Jones, three things with TFJ. As he fills in for Chanelie Vidal today, it was three things about the State of the Union address. I feel smarter. Thank you, Tristan. You're very welcome. I'm Greg Mackling. He's Brett McGarry and uh, Russell Wilson also causing a stir in our community over the last 24 hours or so. Uh, yes, that's right. Jeff Career, by the way, is on Global News Morning. You know the details of the Russell Wilson thing better than I do. Who is Russell Wilson, by the way, Russell for the uneducated? Russell Wilson is the quarterback of the Seattle Seahawks. He's married to a performer named Sierra. Yes, that is correct. Right. And, and uh, so- by the way, for some context as well, in case you don't, you might know this if you, you know, if I'm 40. So when I used to, on the, the, the back end of my going out to clubs days, this was a popular song. I'll just turn up there. If you're looking for the goodies, keep on looking because they stay in the jar. Yeah, interesting. Yes. Well, the jar uh, was here in Winnipeg. And uh, up on Lake Winnipeg yesterday afternoon uh, in Gimli, they were driving Mercedes-Benz part of their winter program. It costs like $6,000 and you come and you get to drive Mercedes-Benz on the ice up in uh, Gimli. And we were talking about some of the famous people we'd bumped into just happened by uh, in our lifetime. We had uh, plenty of text messages, including uh, someone who said that they uh, almost literally ran into Nicolas Cage at a piano bar in New Orleans. And our friend uh, Big Daddy Taz had a great story about one of the more epic, prolific authors of all time. Yes, uh, Taz says, uh, walking to Nelson, British Columbia, early in my career, head down, I walked straight into somebody, knocked him on his butt, turned out to be Stephen King. I knocked (laughs) Stephen King on his butt, helped him, uh, helped pick him up, pick up his glasses, and I said, sorry, I was outside of a shop called All Things Dead, 
from the movie Roxanne. By the way, I needed to commend you as well for the, the correct use of the word literally. You say we're getting stories of people <laughs> literally bumping into famous people. That is my biggest pet peeve. The word literally is so overused and you used it in the, the proper context. So thank you, Jeff, or thank you very much for that, Greg. Uh, You're welcome, Brad. Yeah. So I, I meant to pat you on the back earlier and I forgot. So. Yeah, that's more than excellent. And we also had Yuri said, uh, actually had dinner with Tom Selleck oh. in Hawaii back in the day when he was shooting Magnum P.I. Oh, my God. <laughs> and he met Yul Brynner in Paris. Yeah, Yuri has led a charmed life. Hey, you're a big SCTV guy once upon a time, weren't you? Behind the glass, Jerry? Absolutely. Do you remember John Candy in Magnum P.E.I.? Yes, Magnum. <laughs> hey, put those potatoes down. <laughs> Set against the exotic backdrop of Prince Edward Island. It's Magnum P.E.I. Freeze! Come on, put those potatoes back. Come on, they're not yours. I mean it. Back. <laughs> was it was it Sonny LaRue in, in Magnum PEI, or who was he? Which character? Do you remember? I don't remember which character. It wasn't Johnny LaRue because he was a oh, director. Oh, yeah, Johnny LaRue. <laughs> <laughs> the look on your face is great right now. <laughs> Uh, send us your uh, chance encounters with celebrities, gmac at cjob.com. Or I think one of the things uh, that I'm most proud of that we've done in the last, I guess, year and a half and working together is trying to bring the, the, the arts, something that a lot of people feel is for only a certain few in our community and bringing it down to the grassroots and to make it applicable and relatable to, what did you used to call yourself? Because you don't call yourself this anymore. Ah, an uncultured lout. And you're not. You really <laughs> aren't. And and I think that there are many of us that see ourselves this way. And hopefully we are bringing guests onto the show, on the air here at 680 CGOB, that can break down some of those barriers. And I think our next guest is a fine example of that. And this has to do with Canada's ballet, Jorgen's Anastasia, happening on Friday, February 2nd at 7.30 at the Pantages Playhouse Theatre, or Anastasia, I believe, depending on who you are. Well, let's ask our guest what she thinks, Heather lumsden Rug, who is a dancer with Canada's Ballet, Jorgen, based out of Toronto, joining us in studio on 680 CJOB. How do you say it? Um, I say Anastasia. But, but your director? Anastasia. Anastasia. Yeah. Okay. So either way is acceptable. So, hey, thanks for stopping to, to pay us a visit. Uh, we appreciate the time. First of all, I guess Canada's Ballet Jorgen. That's right. Um, this, tell us a little bit about that organization. All right. So uh, this is actually our company's 30th anniversary. Um, the first performance uh, was in Vancouver in 1987. So um, this is our special year to be traveling across the country. And so the celebration of 30 years, tell us a little bit about the foundation of the ballet in terms of what it aims to do and how it does it. You're on this coast-to-coast -to -coast tour, and, you know, with all due respect, uh, the travel isn't necessarily all glamour, glitz and glamour. No, that's right. Uh, I guess we spend a lot of time in minivans, um, and we travel throughout a lot of different communities. Uh, this year... Um, we're traveling to 33 communities performing Anastasia. Wow. So this uh, performance of Anastasia is in partnership with the Royal Winnipeg Ballet as part of their season of storytelling. So tell us uh, about Anastasia for those who are unfamiliar with this show. 
All right. Well, it's um, it's based on a true story. This is actually the hundredth anniversary um, commemorating the disappearance of Anastasia. She was the Grand Duchess um, in Russia, and uh, there was a great movement there that pushed the royal family out of power. Um, so this is basically a look at what may have happened to Anastasia and her disappearance. So it's a little bit of a theory, but it's based on a true story. And so does that get lost sometimes in ballet, the fact that sometimes there is a story being told? And is it necessary for the audience to know the story? Does it matter? No, I don't think it matters. You know, I think it's... um it's a bit of a lesson, actually, um, and you learn a little bit more about history. And I, we try to be pretty accurate in what the characters are doing and um, sort of how they appear on stage. Well, let me run this past you because I, I have I've been to the ballet a number of times now, and I really do enjoy it. But my first uh, time to the ballet, I, which I guess was about seven, eight years ago, I went with my then girlfriend, and uh, I kept having to ask her, "What's going on? What's going on?" Because I didn't understand because it was I it was the first time I had watched a story told entirely through dance. And she made a comment that she's been going to the ballet since she was a kid. And apparently it's actually a good thing to take your kids to the ballet because they learn how to interpret things through some of the symbolism and the other, the other ways that you tell stories. So is that, does that make sense to yeah, you? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, something that we try to do as a company um, in making ballet accessible to people is to make that storytelling really clear. That's something that we focus on a lot. Um, so that when we travel to more remote communities that maybe don't get to see dance very often, that they really understand what's going on throughout the ballet. So, you know, uh, hockey has opened up new frontiers uh, in the last 40, 50 years, countries that never played hockey before. You look at the United States where they've got National Hockey League teams and in places that 30 years ago you never would have predicted and thriving. And an example is Austin Matthews in Toronto who was born and raised in, in Arizona, first overall pick. And so I, I don't think the, the hockey gods or the hockey management might have ever imagined that one of the best hockey players in the world would come from the middle of a desert. There is a point to my bringing this up. When you travel and you go around Canada and you are exposing uh, young people to the ballet that might otherwise not have that exposure, do you under do, do you uncover some some talent that you might not otherwise uncover? And do you meet individuals who are inspired to say, "Hey, you know what? I never thought I might want to do this, but I think I'd like to give it a try." Yeah, you know, I really hope so. Um, we also run a local participant program, which means that every single community we visit. Uh, we try to incorporate some young local dancers in the show as well. Oh, so here we're including um, nine dancers from the Royal Winnipeg Ballet School. Um, and everywhere we go, we sort of hold little auditions and include them in the show. They get a chance to interact with us backstage and appear on stage with us as well. Our guest in studio is Heather Lumsden-Rug. She is a dancer, a ballet dancer with Canada's Ballet Jorgen, which on Friday will be performing Canada Ballet's, or Canada's Ballet Jorgen's Anastasia at 7.30 p.m. at the Pantages Playhouse. And you mentioned uh, that you're traveling to 33 communities across Canada. So Greg's actually got a question for you about what that's like, uh, sort of making another hockey analogy. With surprise, that. We'll, surprise. We'll explain all of that. On 680 CJOB.
Our guest in studio today, Macklin McGarry in the morning on 680 CJOB, is Heather Lumsden Rouge. She is a ballet dancer with Canada's Ballet Jorgen, here to perform Anastasia on Friday, February 2nd at 7.30 p.m. at Pantages Playhouse Theatre, one of 33 communities across Canada that the Ballet Jorgen is visiting. And Greg has a question for you, Heather, about what it's like to... To perform in 33 different communities. Yeah, and uh, it's not necessarily the communities itself, but it's the stages. And I was thinking about hockey, as I often do. You know, ice conditions can change from arena to arena. The configuration of the boards, you've got different stanchions. The puck can bounce this way or that way. Angles can be slightly different. I can only imagine it must be harrowing at times to dance on so many different stages. What are the constrictions and what are the challenges there? Uh, yeah, that's right. We um, we see a lot of different types of stages. Um, the The size of stage uh, will really change what it's like performing. Um, sometimes we have to change the amount of people who are on stage or the set pieces as well. And we also keep in mind uh, the sight lines for the audience. So if the audience is really widespread, we have to make sure to do everything really far downstage so that everybody can see what we're doing and tell the story effectively. Now, one of the things we sort of touched on in our previous segment here is that uh, Canada's Ballet, and this is in the About Canada's Ballet organ, it's a classical ballet company that aims to make ballet accessible and relevant to 21st century audiences. So you you, you did touch on it and on how that, you know, you want to make sure that uh, the way that the story is told is sort of clear for everybody, but how what do you do differently i guess than uh, than what would be typical for what one might think of ballet um well we do keep our ballets on the shorter side sometimes when you see classical ballet it's quite a long performance um and it might be hard for uh, young people or people who aren't familiar with ballet to sit through. Um, so we do keep our ballets on the shorter side of things. We also focus a lot on the acting and the performing um, to make sure that everything makes sense and everything flows in a way that's really um, easy to understand. This must be a labor of love. It is. How old absolutely. were you when you decided you wanted to do this? Uh, you know, I, I started pretty late. Um which is unusual for a female ballet dancer. Uh, I think I decided I wanted to be a professional when I was about 16 um, and didn't start dancing professionally until I was about 22. Wow. So that yeah, that would be late. I imagine that for some people they might be tailing off in terms of their career because we were speaking <laughs> off air, right? How long does a female right. dancer perform? And I guess a big part of that is whether they want to have family or not. That's right, yeah. And the timing of all that. So do you know how many kilometers you, you drove last year or the ballet did overall? You know, I don't. I know it was a lot. <laughs> well, according to the information we have in front of us, 50,000 kilometers yeah, that makes traveled sense. to perform these ballets across the country. Uh, as I mentioned, the, the travel isn't necessarily glamorous. You described yourself as something quite humorous uh, before we came on the air. You want to share that with our listeners? I might have referred to myself as a soccer mom. <laughs> yeah, yes, you did. <laughs> a minivan full of dancers? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. How many uh, members of your team can you fit into one minivan? Uh, well, sometimes we have seven people total in a van. It, it depends on our length of drive. We try not to do that when we're driving more than 200 kilometers. 
And it's just the one show in Winnipeg, right? Just this Friday, and that's, that's right. it. Yeah. Okay, so it's Friday, February second, at Pantages Playhouse, seven thirty p.m. Canada's Ballet Jorgen's Anastasia, and the website is Canada's Ballet You can find them on Facebook, Instagram, as well as on Twitter at Ballet Jorgen CA. Heather Lumsden Rug, thank you so much for joining us to tell us about this. Thank you for having me. Brett McGarry and Greg Mackling with you. And uh, Brett, you know I, I deal with headaches from time to time and the whole idea of nausea. Burning eyes, though, is something that I'm certainly unfamiliar with. I cannot imagine going outside one morning and encountering anything, an odor that might induce all these symptoms. Yeah, this is a chemical cloud which descended on a small Saskatchewan town earlier this month. Residents complained... Oh, you know what, Greg? I can't read that. Oh, where is it? Sorry. Technology failure. Our text messaging software is overwhelming us right now. We're getting about uh, 25 text messages from one person, and it's kind of bogging down our computer, so apologies. Residents complained of headaches, nausea, and burning eyes. It wasn't until the next day that an oil and gas waste disposal facility revealed there was an odor coming from their site, but insisted there was no risk to the public. However, the residents of Unity are not so sure. Carolyn Jarvis, Global National Investigative Reporter, joins us now live on 680 CJOB. Carolyn, good morning to you. Good morning to you guys. Carolyn, uh, how did this incident come to your attention? Well, we've been investigating through an overarching series called The Price of Oil, uh, the impact of the oil and gas industry, both in Saskatchewan and in Ontario, for well, now going on two and a half, almost three years now. So when these sort of events happen, a lot of residents think to notify us to make sure that we're looking into things. This was one of those instances where at 10 o'clock at night on a frigid Saskatchewan winter's evening, a waft of something acrid, hot, burning, people described it as being. Other people called it sour, sour egg-like wafted across town so much so that people thought there was a gas leak inside their house but went outside to realize the smell was only stronger people brought their dogs inside one family thought i'm going to take my kids we're going to evacuate the entire community or we're going to leave the community ourselves you know at 10 o'clock at night people woke one one mother took her kids out of bed thinking the leak was inside her house and stood outside on the street at 10 o'clock at night with her young kids and her dogs thinking that there was something inside her house that was going to make them too sick. But it was just worse outside. Turns out it was an industrial leak. So we think it's not conclusively um, determined to be as such, but suspicions point that way. And the facility has said it's likely from our facility. But nobody knows what they were breathing in. And a statement for the company says, oh, there was no risk. But that doesn't jive with the experiences of people who live there. So what was the, uh, and I'm looking at this a day after the incident, operators of, uh, was it a waste disposal site that is the, exactly. the possible culprit? The possible culprit, yeah. It's named, the name of the waste disposal site is Trevita. It's about two kilometers southeast of the town, and conveniently the winds were blowing from a southeasterly direction. So, you know, it, all the ingredients were in place for this perfect storm of something either coming from the facility or coming from a truck that may have been dropping off a load, and they said there was a malfunctioning pump and this waft of chemical X or blend of chemicals came over the community. And almost instantly, people said they experienced headaches, migraines, burning eyes. One, one woman with sensitive eyes had to go on steroids for her eyes the next day. Nausea. People were really concerned. They were wandering around their house not knowing where this was coming from or whether it was coming from outside and what the source was and what means they should take to protect themselves. And as we talked about earlier, there were no warnings from the community and no information coming from the community in immediacy at the moment. 
Carolyn Jarvis joins us now. And uh, Carolyn, when I think of something like this here in Winnipeg, if the wind blows the wrong way or the right way, depending on how you look at it, we can get all sorts of smells from uh, different mm-hmm. industrial plants and and rural areas outside the city of Winnipeg. Uh, hog hog produ- production is huge in Manitoba, as you may know. And so uh, depending on the time of year and the wind direction, we can get some unpleasant smells. But this sounds as though it would be fairly unpleasant precedented in its nature and the way it engulfed this uh, tiny community. Oh, for sure. And people said, listen, exactly what you just said. We get one of two smells depending on which way the wind is blowing. But what happened that night was totally off the charts, was not what they were used to. They weren't used to a smell that caused them instant discomfort. That's not to say every single person in town got ill, but let's just say that there was you know, a dozen or so messages on the town's Facebook page almost instantly. And then think about how many people didn't have the guts to post it online who experienced something or how many people within a given family experienced something. So this was definitely an adverse effect. I think it's the the fact that a company then released a statement saying it was not hazardous, it was not dangerous, and there was no risk to either the employees or a risk to the public. What does that really mean? If there's no risk, people say, that means it doesn't affect me. But this certainly did. And so they want to know, A, what was I breathing in? And two, what measures are happening so that this doesn't happen again? And those answers, to a certain degree, are underway. Um, but certainly the, the issue of it not being hazardous hasn't been addressed yet. And it, and it makes them feel like their concerns aren't being heard. Carolyn, it's difficult to prove a negative. And so is the company offering any sort of proof that this was a non-hazardous cloud, if we want to characterize it this way? What proof have they presented to suggest that what folks in Unity were breathing was not hazardous to their health? Well, here's the first question. What were they breathing in? And that question hasn't been answered. I mean, if, if we knew that to start off with, where the leak came from, was it from the load? Was it from the disposal facility itself? We could tell you what we were dealing with, but we don't even know that yet. The province, to its credit, has hired a third-party consulting group to look into this uh, more forcefully. But when we contacted Trevita for comment and Shell, which we understand may have been involved in a shipment that, that day and that evening, neither company wanted to share more details with us, just saying that they were cooperating with the Saskatchewan government's investigation. So... Um, The details are few. It's unfortunate. Uh, Listen, we all understand that we all, all Canadians, rely on the products that are produced from this industry. And and nobody's talking about bringing down an industry. It's about making sure that the people who live and work in these industries are, are safeguarded as a result and that they are operating responsibly. And yeah, when you look at the quote from Trevita that talks about how they, they issued a statement confirming that it was a malfunctioning pump which released an unpleasant smell that was not hazardous or dangerous, but they don't identify what exactly it was that was released, that uh, you can't help but but think that's a little sketchy. Well, I think to many people, the response they had was that it was dismissive. You know, like... They're there. There was nothing, nothing happened, nothing to see here. Move along. I think was the impression that local residents got. And that just angered them more. This, you know, one person said to me, horrible lies. That was her response when I said, well, the, gov- you know, the company says there's nothing wrong here. And she said, that's ridiculous. How can you tell me there's nothing wrong? And so people feel like their concerns aren't valid, that they're not being heard, and that there, isn't, there aren't being steps to, if they're not being heard in the first place, how can there possibly steps being taken to prevent it from happening again? And those are realistic concerns. So that, those are some of the overarching themes we're looking at. It. 
in our investigative work in Saskatchewan and Ontario. How can we make sure that the neighbours of these industries are being safeguarded, the employees of these industries are being safeguarded, so that we can consume these products and have confidence that they are functioning responsibly. You know, we have radon gas uh, monitors that are available to the public. I think just about everyone has a carbon monoxide detector in their home. What is H2S, Carolyn? I didn't do very well at science in high school. Ah. What is H2S for the uninitiated, and and, uh, can it be monitored for? For sure. So H2S is hydrogen sulfide. It's a a common-ish uh, chemical that you see sometimes as a byproduct in the oil and gas industry. It's a problem in certain parts of Saskatchewan, particularly in the southeastern corner where they can have sour wells, sour oil, um, and, and it can be in waste disposal facilities. There was a sign outside of the Trevita facility saying danger H2S emissions may be present. To our knowledge, they had H2S monitors on the site. They won't tell us whether or not they went off or there are readings. Um, there is no H2S monitor in the town of Unity. The only H2S monitor is so far away from the community of Unity, it's deemed irrelevant, essentially. The province did come out the next day from its Lloyd Minster field office to do field testing for various chemicals, including H2S, and did not detect any. But when you come out the day after the event, that doesn't really do you much good. Um so yes, H2S is something to be taken very seriously. I mean, it's a chemical that if you inhale it in significant enough quantities, you can die. And at a certain point, you stop smelling it. At very low levels, you smell that sour egg odor. It's very pungent, even at very low levels. But after it breaches a certain level, you don't smell it. I can't say whether or not what people were breathing in was H2S. I have nothing to indicate that it was or was not, but it's certainly one of the concerns people in this community have. And if you're living on the doorstep of industry, why isn't there a monitor in the community to detect this sort of thing? Why should uh, the rest of Canada be paying attention to this story? I mean, this is a small town in Saskatchewan and, you know, some people in the studio included uh, don't have necessarily the fondest affection for Saskatchewan. And I'm trying to bring some levity to the conversation where it's all serious. That has something to do with that, Carolyn. But, you know, why should all Canadians be paying attention to what what is going on or maybe more importantly, what's not gone on in Unity, Saskatchewan? Because we all rely on these products. I fill up my tank every single week, well, every couple of weeks. Um, And we all rely on the byproducts of the oil and gas industry. Nobody is saying be done with it. That's an unrealistic suggestion. But if you are a consumer of these products, as we all are, and you just need to take a moment to pause and reflect on that, then you need to make sure that the people who live beside them, because most of us don't, are being looked after. And that's important. And I think that's Canadian. All right, Carolyn Jarvis, thank you so much for joining us this morning on 680 CJOB. We appreciate the time and access. My pleasure as always. All right, Carolyn Jarvis joining us. Uh, She is a global national investigative reporter. Again, the headline at globalnews.ca and cjob.com. This oil patch town was overcome by a mystery odor. Now its residents are asking, what made us sick? I'm a huge fan of the work Carolyn Jarvis does, the investigative reporting that she does for Global National, and uh, this report uh, certainly no different than many of her other works over the years. I'm Brad, he's Greg, Behind the Glass, Jerry, and Tristan Field-Jones in for Chanelie today on 680 CJOB. Mm-hmm.